Hello, this is uh, Sue Jackson on Finding Human, and my guest today is Daniel Schwab, and he's in Israel, and we're doing a pre-record. And um, if you remember, on the 21st of August, Daniel's dad, Norman Schwab, and his sister, Ricky Lyons, were on my program, and we were talking about the book Think from Things Lost, which is about forgotten letters and letters of the Holocaust by historian Shirley Gelbert. And it tells the story of the Schwab family, and which is incredibly fascinating. So if you actually want that book, you can get it from the Holocaust Genocide Center in Johannesburg. But now I have Daniel, and he's in Israel, and he is going to be talking about the continuation of the, fam- of the family's fascinating history. And Daniel, to begin with, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you, sir. And how do you feel about telling the story, your part of the story? Um, it's, uh, you know, I always, I always feel like, uh, it's therapeutic for me. So Good. <laughs> it's in, in a sense, uh, uh, you know, an opportunity to get a different perspective of a story that, uh, I, I'm constantly thinking about. So, Good. Now, so, just yeah, do I'm me a favor, Daniel. Sorry, just sorry. I'm just interrupting yeah. you, but Vusi's just saying, come a bit closer to your phone, or put it in front of your mouth okay. a bit, so that it's just okay. okay. How's that? Is that better? Yeah, that's better. Now, you are. That's you better. would be okay. called a third generation descendant post Holocaust. Is that right? Yes, that's uh, that would be a term that. Uh, that would probably describe me. Although, you know, one could ask, you know, am I third or maybe I'm even fourth? Because my grandfather, um, he Rudolph. didn't actually go. Yeah, Rudolf. He didn't actually live, uh, you know, in the camps. He, he left Germany before the Holocaust. Yes. So he might be considered a second generation, and then my father would be a third generation, and I would be a fourth generation. All right, so, so being, you know, the, <laughs> the, it's, it, it can get quite complicated. But, you know, uh, Eric yeah. from which I actually I mentioned this in your dad and, and Ricky's uh, interview, that Eric from uh, said that transmission is the giving of a task from one generation to each other, uh, to another. And he says the next generation must assist from disassociating from the family heritage We've got to bring its full tragic story into social discourse. Do you feel this responsibility? Mm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that. Uh, I mean, I admit I had the maybe the unfortunate uh, task of actually uncovering the story and and uh, sort of revealing it and uh, studying it in detail for the first time and kind of opening up the, this uh, box of, of information mm. and the story that lay in it. So, you know, I guess it's, it's a big responsibility. Um, and, and there has been many times where I felt like I wish, I wish I hadn't actually, you know, I wish I hadn't actually revealed anything and I hadn't discovered anything. Oh, because so of the responsibility kind of a, with uh, there's it. There's a double side to it. Mm-hmm. Now, just go back to when you actually found, just tell us a bit about the letters. They were in a trunk, in at uh, always in your dad's garage, and then at Ricky, yes. is that right? No, no, actually, they were always at, in my parents', uh, my parents uh, garage, mm-hmm. and uh, that's where I found them uh, it's all, it's 10 years ago now. Okay. So, um, they lay there for about 40 years. Good uh, heavens. pretty much. And yeah. what made you just go a bit closer to your phone again? What made you actually um, go in to open that trunk? Was it intuition or was it curiosity? What was it? Well, so, you know, growing up, um, this uh, family tree that hung in the entrance to our house was always a fascination of mine. I used to spend probably, you know, way too much time trying to decipher it. Mm. Um, so I always had this fascination of, of, of the, the family history and where, you know, what was this uh, family tree and who, you know, this, how can it be so important and yet we know so little about it. Um, and then, 
you know, knowing that there, there was a trunk, uh, it was always in the back of my mind growing up. Uh, but it's the kind of thing that, um, you know, sort of, well, no one's got time for it. My dad's not, uh, you know, making a fuss of it, so why should I? And I, you know, obviously wanted to live my life and wasn't, you know, that's hooked up on trying to find out what was going on. But then at the time where I had some, you know, had come back from Israel um, for Go business, back a bit. I was... Go back a bit. Why were you in Israel? Okay, so yeah, so I I came to Israel almost permanently when I was eighteen, which is going it's nineteen ninety four. Did you decide then? Did you decide then to make Aliyah? Um, No, I I came on a Benat Kiva program Mm -hmm. uh, a year after high school. Uh, like a gap year, and then when I came back from that, uh, that's when I decided I wanted to live in Israel. I spent a year in Yeshiva in South Africa, in Yeshiva Gedola, uh, yes. in observatory. Uh-huh. Uh, and then after that year in observatory, I told my parents, well, you know, I'm quite committed to going back to Israel. So I went uh, I went back to Israel and carried on studying Yeshiva uh, for a second year, and uh, cut a long story short, that's kind of since then I've been living in Israel. So what was the role of Judaism when you were growing up? Was, you know, you, you say you saw this family tree and you were fascinated about it, but by it. But what was the role of Judaism in your life at the time? So it, it was very ambiguous. You know, on the one hand, I had my father's side, which was, you know, I knew that you know, we, we, we were uh, identified as Reform Jews. Um, my, my grandfather was very involved uh, in the Reform movement in South Africa in the early days. Mm. And then my dad, obviously, he was quite involved in on the committees. And I had a, a Reform Bar Mitzvah. Oh, um, is that so? And, but then I went to King David. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Um, and then, so but in King David, I had some interesting sort of conflicting experiences because I had a, quite a religious uh, uh, friend or a co-student yes. who kind of used, you know, at the age of, I don't know, seven, eight years old, used to um, used to actually tell me that I'm not really Jewish because I'm Reformed. Uh, and, you know, King David, although it's secular, it's, it's very much identified as Orthodox. Yes. So I was sort of the odd one out, uh, the one of the few that went through the form. Mm. Um, and so at the early age, seven, eight years old, I was already thinking, well, what does Judaism mean to me? And, you know, what's the difference between Reform and Orthodox and things like that? And growing up, uh, that kind of that conflict and question came up again and again. I had cousins that were very much involved in the Orthodox community. Right. Um, and so after my bar mitzvah, I, um, I told my parents that I, I don't want to be Reform. I want to be an Orthodox shul. I, used, I just somehow I had a, um, uh, let's call it a, a very deep emotional attachment to orthodoxy. Okay. Uh, um, I can't really explain it other than that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, enjoyed, I just enjoyed the services. I enjoyed the authenticity of it. I didn't like the reform uh, atmosphere. It just felt very, um, uh, it didn't feel authentic. It felt okay. like we they won't were doing go into it that, tick but, a box. Okay, so we won't go into that. But for you, it wasn't what you wanted. Mm. Now, just to yeah. to go back, so your grandfather, you didn't know him. Um, he was killed in a hit and, um, hit and run accident before you were born. Is that so? Yeah, that's right. He he died before I was born, so, so I never d- met him. So did you ever question your dad about him or even looking at your family tree? I would like you to just explain a bit because you go right back. You're actually, and I'm wondering if this is not what the feeling that you had throughout your life was because your ancestry, direct ancestry, comes from the Maharal. Yeah, it's actually the Maharil, which is uh, very, you know, it's significant difference between the Maharal and the Maharil. Oh, okay. But, uh, so yeah, tell I mean, us the, about the Maharil. So, yeah, so the, the Maharal is is a significant uh, figure in in the in you know Jewish uh, in the Jewish uh, uh, rabbinical lineage. The Maharil is less known. 
but he, you know he was quite significant in Germany and on a more local level in, in the German Orthodox uh, sort of I, I guess six seven hundred years ago. He's quite a significant uh, halakhic uh, decision maker. But anyway, the, the, the bottom line is that um, for me, um, it definitely had significance and it was interesting. And I felt proud of it. But I felt that this is something uh, I'd like to know more about. So it definitely piqued my curiosity and made me feel, I, I guess, very much an authentic Jew and a, I, I, that I had something you know, quite special that I needed to hold on to or at least understand more. So it almost helped you reclaim yourself. And then what was your reaction to finding the letters? Um, did Were you able to translate any yourself? Or they were in German and English, weren't they? Yeah, so, so the first sort of day or two, opening up the, the box and, and looking at the letters, um, I'd say 95 were in German, so there were only a couple in in, in English. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you really you, you see names and dates and you know places, and it, it's all the same you know same letters, so, you know Latin Latin letters. So you you know you get a sense of what's going on. Um, now that was in two thousand and nine, is that right? Uh, two thousand and eight. Eight two thousand and eight. So were you just visiting yeah. South Africa at the time? Correct, yes. I was uh, in one of my business trips and uh, uh, had a Sunday available. So, you know, not much to do without family there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I just, you know, and my mom was tidying up and she likes to be very well organized. So we, we were, I was helping her clean up a bit. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, it's just, well, hey, you know what, I've got the time and I've always been curious. Uh, why don't I actually try and figure this out? So I spent a couple of hours and started opening them up and saw one or two in English. And that really hit me. That's when I realized, whoa, this is something unique. Because I, I asked my dad, I said, have you heard of this person? Have you heard of that person? Did you know that uh, Grandpa Ralph uh, you know, visited Belgium and lived in Belgium and lived in England and lived in Holland? And he, he said, no, I, I didn't know any of this, you know. Mm. So some you know, basic information uh, even my father didn't know about my, my grandfather. So I thought, well, hang on a second. You know, so I'm just reading, you know, a couple of letters and I'm revealing things that my, gra- my father doesn't know. And surely this whole, you know, thousands of letters, there must be a lot more that he, he may no, not be aware of. And a lot more um, significance. So, and, you know, when, you, when, when I interviewed yeah, your dad, yeah. He was saying that there was almost a barrier to asking your grandfather. I see you call him Ralph, and in the letters he's called Rudolph. But your dad said there was almost a barrier to, even though he knew that he was writing letters to relatives and what have you, he never really asked him much about it because there was a barrier that you just didn't cross over to ask these questions. Yeah, I I definitely get that sense, uh you know, growing up, that my dad knew very, very little about uh, about uh, Grandpa Ralph's uh, history mm-hmm. and his family. Like he didn't even know basic names. He hardly remembered, you know, his uncle Hunt and he, you know, like you know, his 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 grandparents. You know, mm-hmm. like my father didn't actually know the names. Like if I asked him, what were the names of your grandparents? Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't able to tell me. So there was that whole area of his life, and I mean of your family's life, that was actually lost and would have probably remained lost unless you had come across these letters and seen the significance in them. Yeah, that's absolutely, for sure. I mean, all of this would have been <laughs> would have been lost uh, for good, and I don't think uh, my children certainly wouldn't have tried to dig this up or. Or, or, I mean, who knows, maybe, but uh, that would have been a, a real difficult task if, uh, did if we it, didn't have these letters. Did these letters, and uh, as because you got hold of Tully Nace at the Holocaust Center, I know, and then you got hold of Shirley uh, Gelbert, who actually ended up writing, the historian who ended up writing the book. Once they began to, once uh, Shirley got all the letters um, translated, did the contents change you in any way? Oh, I mean, absolutely, yeah. I mean, even even just reading those first few letters, 
And I got initially, before Shirley received the letters, I got a couple of volunteers to translate letters for me. So I already had quite a, 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 quite a good understanding of what was in the letters before Shirley got them. Okay, um, we just I, break I really it. invested hundreds of hours. We're sorry, we just, we're going to go back to the letters. We're just breaking for an advert quickly. Stay relevant and up to date. This is 101.9 High FM. Okay, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. My guest today in Israel is Daniel Schwab, and we are talking about uh, his family history and the book From Things Lost, which was uh, historian Shirley Gilbert um, wrote. And it's about the Schwab family history going back generations and Daniel is telling us his role in it because he uncovered uh, he found and decided to translate, have the letters translated that were found in a trunk. If anyone wants to listen to the previous podcast you may do so, go on to Chai FM Podcasts go on to Monday, Sue Jackson at 10 to 11 Finding Human and it's on. it was, they were on the 21st of August, so it's worth listening to that first. Okay, Daniel, back to you. Just remember, just to go quite close to your phone, um, and you were just saying how they began to change you, because I'm sure you were looking for more answers in this family history, weren't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, then, then my, my whole imagination started kicking in, and uh, uh, you know, I wrote, actually wrote a whole list of questions before uh, we got them translated, and uh, you know things like uh, you know what, were were my grandparents you know uh, observant Jews or not? Um, what did they think of Israel? Why didn't they go to Israel? Um, you know, were there other brothers and sisters or other members of the family that uh, you know what happened to them? How, how did they die? Um, you know, where were they? What were they thinking about? All of these questions. So, I mean, for me, it was like, um, it, it, it really gave me a much, much deeper awareness of my identity, of who I am. I'm you know? sure. And a lot of that growing up, I never I never felt like I really understood who I really was, not not having this history. And, and having it revealed in such detail, certainly gave me a, a far greater depth and understanding of who I, who I am and, 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 you know, just appreciation for just the fact that I'm, I am where I am, you know, living in Israel with a family, with kids and, and, and growing up in, in such a wonderful environment, you know, appreciation of, of all the good things that I've had in my life. You know, Absolutely. Um, stark, stark contrast to a very stark contrast to what um, you know, my grandfather and my great-grandparents and my great-uncle experienced and you know, the whole family. And even your father's experiences, you know, of being sent off to boarding school at a very young age and never being able to actually get close to his own father, your grandfather. So when, would you yeah. have liked to have met your grandfather, Ralph Rudolph? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that would have been amazing. I mean, <laughs> uh, having now... Experienced uh, him through the letters. Mm. Um, what a fascinating guy he must have been. Uh, it's super talented. I mean, uh, you know, one of the interesting things is, uh, and I wasn't sure whether the significance of the letters was anything beyond just the family interest. Mm. But when Dr. Gilbert uh, told me that she felt that the letters were so well written and it's such a you know, so, such a content, you know, such a texture to the letters, mm. and and you know his ability to write in English and German, and uh, you know, write in a, in such a uh, 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 such a professional way. Um, someone like that has great intelligence and has great strength of character. Um, his fight for justice. I mean, he spent years and years and years fighting for some form of justice. Uh, you know just huge amount of energy and effort that he put into trying to get his parents and his brother out of Germany. All of that, I just feel like he was a, like a, a, a hero, and, and there were many of him. I'm, I'm not saying he was the only one, 
But for me, he was my hero. The fact that someone, you know, without any anyone knowing, you know, a complete silent journey that he went through, and so um, many challenges, you know, trying to get his family out of mm. Germany mm. and doing all this writing and connecting the family together and 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 writing the history of the family. Uh, I think it's a tremendous tribute to him uh, as a person. Well, I think it's wonderful that you are actually able to talk about him today, quite honestly, because that's a tribute to him. And I see, when I read that book, I could not believe his many challenges. And I I couldn't help but Mm -hmm. think of the terrible guilt he must have felt at not being able to get his family out, at begging them to leave when he did. And what the Mm -hmm. letters really showed was life before the Holocaust, Life during mm-hmm. the Holocaust, when the Holocaust had already started, but his own family weren't um, affected by it badly at the time. And then during the Holocaust, and of course after the Holocaust, when he lost contact with his parents and his mm-hmm. brother. Uh, you know, what a tragedy. And here he wrote it all. So he obviously, mm-hmm. even though emotionally he was not able to outwardly show emotions, inwardly, he must have had a huge struggle. Yeah, absolutely. And I think today, you know, we, we, we kind of take it for granted that there are social workers and psychologists, and you know, if you've got a problem, there's almost any, you know you can always find someone to talk to. I mean, mm-hmm. Hard to, to believe that in today's age you can't. But back then, he had no one. He had nothing. No, no one to share that experience with, and no one to talk to. So uh, to me, this let, this letter writing was a therapy for him that uh, kept him alive and vibrant uh, for his later years. Absolutely. I, I must admit, I also, uh, when I ended that book, there were a lot of uh, things that I would have liked to have asked him as well. But now tell me, what made you decide? Because your grandfather was was um, buried. Well, he, he your grandfather's father was buried mm-hmm. in, um, so in other words, your great-grandfather. He he died in in a concentration camp. Which one was it that he died in? In uh, Sachsenhausen. That's right. Uh, Sachsenhausen. It's just outside of Berlin. Okay, and then apparently he did have a uh, your your grandmother had actually reserved quite a few burial places in Hanau, where they came from, and mm-hmm. your, and your grandfather, right. which I also think is a huge tribute to him, that he took. Your his father's he he interred the ashes, and actually had mm-hmm. them buried in Hanau. Is that right? Yeah. So I mean, it's it's kind of the just as correct, but there's a lot more interesting details. Tell um, us a bit so about it. Was, yeah. So uh, in 1942, he was in Sachsenhausen, and then the Nazis came and told my great grandmother that he had died, and and said, "Well, if you pay some money." You'll, you, you know, you'll get an urn with his ashes, and um, and so she paid for the ashes, and but they wouldn't let him, or sorry, they wouldn't let her bury the ashes in Hanau, only in Frankfurt. So they had to bury them in Frankfurt, and then in the, in the 1960s, when my grandfather went back to Germany and was in touch with the mayor of Hanau, and the the mayor said, well, what can we do to Something symbolic. We'd like to do something symbolic to demonstrate our contrition and our apology. Is there something that we can do for you? And he said, "Yeah, well, actually, you can. You can, you know, intern his ashes from Frankfurt and and let him be buried next to his parents and his ancestors in Hanau." Mm. So they had a, a ceremony in the 1960s, and that was uh, that was uh, sort of covered in the newspapers in, in Germany, but. Um, but actually, having studied some of the history, apparently it was a whole farce. In actual fact, the Nazis, they didn't actually have the ashes of a particular person. They actually, they didn't care about, a, you, know, you know, preserving some Jews' ashes in a particular urn. Mm-hmm. It was just a money-making scheme. So I, I seriously doubt that his ashes are actually in Hanau. So this is, I think, almost completely symbolic. Uh, it, it was a it was a money making scheme that the Nazis that uh, 
kind of capitalized on. Mm, mm. But at the same time, I think for your grandfather, there was a closure in being able to do that because um, his his own father had said all the generations had been buried there, and that's where he wanted to be buried. So I think for perhaps for your grandfather, it was something that he could fulfill. Uh, you know, something for the, a promise to his father. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I get that, and I, I'm sure that that was a feeling. But you know what? Um, I think the reality is that um, you know the the, the the crimes were so despicable and so disgusting and such a, uh, so uh, you know so disconnected to anything humane. Mm-hmm. That uh, I think th- that pain and that non-closure, in, in my view, is, is is where we should be right now. I, I think that even in in 2018, um, I think one of our problems is that we we want closure and we kind of want to bury this and put it away and put it in a box and say, well, we've got your mashua once a year and that's it. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, that's and, so and, true. and to me, that's actually very dangerous. That's not a. I don't think that that level of comfort and closure is necessarily a good thing for us. Well, you know, I read an article on the responsibility of third-generation uh, Holocaust survivors, but, you know, you say you're probably further down, but it doesn't matter. The fact is that the story is up to you now to pass on. But, you know, because after Elie Wiesel died, they were saying that, uh, soon, a lot of the Holocaust survivors will no longer be here to tell their stories, and especially with Holocaust denial being so rampant now. So, um, you know, this article actually said that the burden falls more squarely on those the the next generations now to actually go on talking about them because uh, um, this it was uh, written by a woman and she said that just to ensure that the 11 million people, 6 million of them Jews, who were burnt mm-hmm. and choked in the gas, gas chambers are never forgotten. And I think that's exactly mm-hmm. what you are doing. You're making sure that this will go on. And, um, it, you know, it, it is a responsibility to actually keep it alive. It's up to the great-grandchildren, the, the grandchildren, to actually go on talking about it. Now, Daniel, going back to you, what made you decide to go to Hanau? Tell us a bit about Hanau first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, when this whole process in 2009, I guess, uh, I decided to contact the Hanau municipality and the mayor and let him know, you know, that we had discovered this information and, and you know, we'd like to maybe get his perspective and learn more. Um, it actually turned out it was fortuitous because they were planning the memorial in 2010. So they invited us to come and be part of that memorial. Now, Hanau um, is in Germany you know, and it's quite close to... Yeah. Frankfurt, is that right? Frankfurt on, on Main. Yeah, on Main. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's about twenty-five kilometers away from Frankfurt. It's kind of like a suburb of Frankfurt, almost. Oh right. Um, so would we say it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost? Like, sorry, is it almost like Pretoria from here? That sort of distance. Uh, no, I would say it's closer. So it's like Edenvale, you know, oh. compared to you know, okay. Edenvale and the centre of Joburg. Oh, okay, that that brings it into perspective a bit more. So you went back yeah. and you went with your sister, Ricky, is that right? You know, Ricky and I went. Uh, I'm not sure why my dad didn't go. That's a uh, good question. <laughs> I'm not sure he was so keen on, uh, you know, sort of digging all of this up. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I, I kept asking him whether he was okay with it, and he, was, he, he always gave me his blessing. There was something I... I made a point of asking whether he was okay with, you know, all of this. Um, and he did give me permission, but he kind of was a very, at that point, very passive about it. Mm. Um, mm. So, yeah, Ricky and I went and uh, they had a, in a you know, in a, sort of like a memorial and they put some brass plaques. But just going and seeing the the locations of where they lived and, you know, the streets that they walked around and, I mean, it's a beautiful place. It's like, I mean, I have 
I kind of had a love affair with the place. I was like, absolutely, I could see myself living there, you know. Is that uh, so? Did so you feel beautiful. there was a connection for you, or what was it? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Oh, a beautiful place. I mean, it's really, it's right on the river there. Mm-hmm. They've got this beautiful palace with, with these amazing gardens, and uh, it's just quaint, it's quiet, it's in, you know, it's clean, and it's industrial, it's, it's sort of light industry, and a uh, little bit of commerce. Uh, it's, it's just really nice. And, so it's very uh, hard you know, to historical. believe. Hard to believe that a place like that could have gone through the horrors of what transpired in the Holocaust. How many Jews were there yeah, at the time? Absolutely. Do you uh, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember um, how, many how many Jews two? were there at the time before the Holocaust? Yeah, so there was at the peak in the 30s, like just before the Nazis came to power, there was about 350, I think. Okay, so it was quite a so small, close two shuls. Two, mm-hmm. two shuls, actually two shuls. So one was a reform and the other one was orthodox. Right. And, uh, and my, my, my great-grandfather was associated with the orthodox uh, uh, synagogue. Um, and it was very active, you know. He was, he was very active in the Jewish community as well as the non-Jewish community. Mm-hmm. He played a significant role in the fire department and in cultural and historical associations and the the Army Veterans uh, Association. And there was so one my of my great his... grandfather Max. Mm. Yeah, he was he was very very uh, active. And I think that was in the book. It was very clear that that was one of the main reasons why he just did not believe the horrors that he was hearing because he had been so involved in, in life in Germany um, with all sectors of uh, the population. So, you know, I think he found it very difficult to actually believe when your grandfather told him he had to leave. Stay relevant and up to date. This is 101.9 High FM. Hi, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. My guest today is Daniel Schwab, and I'm interviewing him on a pre record in Israel. And we're talking about his family history, the book that was written, and his family history in Hanau. We actually are back to Hanau now because he and his sister Ricky went back to his great grandparents and many generations' hometown. So you walked around there. Were you welcomed back by the community? Um, so they have an official person who's appointed by the mayor who's head of the Historical and Cultural Society. And so they welcomed uh, us. Um, there was you know, maybe a couple, a handful of other local uh, community representatives that welcomed us. Mm-hmm. Um, not more than that. Um, Did you feel comfortable uh, there? More than that. Um, I I didn't feel I didn't feel uh, that everyone kind of was like you know, ha- happy to see us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there was certainly sort of this feeling that. That there, that, that there was a, a very large silent majority that uh, was kind of ignoring or indifferent or wasn't interested in in what was what what you know the fact that we were there as a group. It wasn't just us, mm. a group of these uh, children of survivors. Um, so I, that that definitely was un, I felt uneasy about it. It was, it was kind of I felt a bit like it was a, a kind of a show, a little bit of a PR exercise. Uh, it wasn't any sense of any attempt to do some real engagement with the community and have a real conversation. Would you have um, liked to have had a bit of debriefing with the community to be able to share? Yeah, what I think absolutely. Felt? I think that I think it would have been far more uh, productive if they had given us the opportunity to. Um, just ask us what what do we think we need to do in order to move forward and um, you know sort of resolve all of these open wounds. Because they, many they didn't of them, even ask us that. and many of them um, must be suffering the wounds themselves because they you know they they're also carrying the burden. 
Well, I think I think the guilt uh, the guilt is heavy. I think the guilt and the, the denial and all of that is still. I'd say the vast majority of Germans live in a in a state of denial and guilt mm-hmm. uh, or indifference. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's something that Germany will have to deal with and it's I mean you see politically what happened last week even in Germany with this right wing coming back against the uh, immigrants you mm-hmm. know they, now it's the immigrants and I'm not I'm, I'm not saying you know I'm all for you know sort of unfettered immigration but nevertheless um, there's a huge potential for violent uh, sort of you know, masses taking the law into their own hands. Mm. And uh, I must admit, it the, is frightening. The reality, I mean, the, 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 look, the, the reality in a very kind of grotesque and brutal way is the reality is that um, the Nazi, Nazism actually was very good for Germany. And they got away with murder. They got away with it in a big, big way. Um, they're a superpower once again, only 70 years ago. And they're a superpower with tremendous economic and political influence and so you know if you can if you can kill so many millions of people in such a grotesque and and, and ridiculous way and then 70 years later become a superpower um you know to be quite frank you know i don't blame people for be maintaining neo-nazi leanings it, mm-hmm. it pays it works <laughs> you know now, for you why for- we haven't we Sorry? haven't done anything to stop it. Mm, and, it's, and with the denial coming in, it is very frightening, and therefore there is a, a responsibility. So do you yourself, Daniel, feel a responsibility for those relatives that you never knew who actually suffered so tragically and, and were killed during the Shoah? Do you feel a responsibility? No, uh, no, I, I mean, I, I don't feel the responsibility in the sense that, you know, I could have done anything about it. I mean, obviously, no, I mean, do, uh, you, res- that's, do that's, you feel a responsibility mm. now for their stories to still be told? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, to, to, to perpetuate the, the memory and to, to remind the world that these people existed and the tremendous suffering they went through, I think uh, it is my responsibility, certainly. But I think more importantly, it's not it's not a personal responsibility to these particular people. Mm. To me, it's a question of the responsibility that we have as uh, as a community uh, about how we need to make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen again. Are you doing anything personally to make sure that the story is told? Sure. I mean, I, I speak in different fora, I, I, especially during Yom HaShoah. Um, during that time here yeah, in Israel, they've got a, a program for people like me to speak to school students and university students. So uh, for that week, I, I give, I don't know, four or five, you know, depending on who, who, who wants to hear the story. But uh, I get invited to speak uh, from time to time. And what sort um, of response do you get? Sorry, go on. Mm, sure. Yeah, so the response has been quite interesting. I mean, I, I really don't focus on the personal story, to be honest. Mm. Um, I kind of spend five minutes on the, the personal story, but then I open it up to the broader questions about, you know, uh, does it, uh, you know, does crime pay or not? Um, you know, does, uh, you know, uh, is there any moral lessons we can learn from this? Um, what should we be doing today to prevent this kind of thing from happening again? I try and you know, focus on the bigger questions that are relevant, whether you're Jewish or not Jewish. You know, I've spoken to non, purely non-Jewish groups um, with a, a very interesting perspective. Uh, a group of German students I spoke to at Hebrew University, they were in, they were far more vicious against uh, you know against uh, Germany, modern Germany. I'm talking about. Mm. You know, the, these German students are very, very worried and very scared about what's going on in modern you know, Germany today. And did they Whereas discuss... The and the Jews are not. Did they discuss um, uh, Germany post... now, post-modern era now, in the Holocaust area, those students? Did they bring that up to you when you were talking about it? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they 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 feel very very worried and concerned that uh, history is going to repeat itself and that lessons have not been learned. Mm-hmm. And you know, they really feel that there's been no real um, attempt to actually deal with the, this problematic history. Mm-hmm. So they they worry for themselves that Germany is going to destroy itself as a you know, liberal democracy. They, 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 they see it because it's their families, it's their friends, it's their community that's going to be destroyed first. Absolutely. Now, going back to uh, Germany about the restitution, I know there was um, in the book said that um, your your grandfather's uh, friend, which was also very interesting. We won't cover that now, but a very interesting friendship. It was between your grandfather and. Um, his Christian friend, German Christian friend, who had warned him to leave Germany before all of everything started in the 1930s, and who later they mm-hmm. reconnected, and um, he had been um, a, a member of the Nazi Party, but he was trying to help your grandfather get restitution afterwards. Uh, do you feel that this restitution was sufficient that your family actually got? What what was the restitution? Yeah, so so firstly, it took them about I would say fifteen years before they actually got some very minimal restitution. Uh, it was uh, according to the best estimates, it was maybe about five percent of the physical assets that uh, were lost: uh, mm-hmm. houses. And um, and property, you know, uh, jewelry and and furniture and things like that. Mm. I'm, I'm not even. They, they've got zero compensation for loss of life. Um, and so did they get their houses back that. in Hanau? Um, well, not really. I mean, they, they basically got compensated financially for, for them mm. uh, because. Uh, it was, like I said, about 5% of the actual value. Gee whiz. What a, you know, that's actually an insult, to tell you the truth. Now, for your... <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Daniel, for you, how do you tell your children the story of, of your family and of the Holocaust without terrifying them? Well, the truth is I don't. Okay. (laughs) Um, So are you doing... There was a period a couple of years back. I I, I gave them a copy of the book, and if they ask me questions, I answer them very directly. What are their ages? Um, So my oldest is 20, and my youngest is 6. And then, so I've got a range all the way, you know, uh, 18, 16, 14... 11 and 8. Wonderful. Baruch Hashem. And uh, so you gave them the book, and did they ask you questions after that? Not really, you know. I think they they get it at school. So my my 18-year-old went to Poland for a week Mm. with the school. So I didn't really have to say anything. She got that experience, and she's old enough to read the book and and so, you know, watch we had, we had a documentary, so there's some video. Um, but no, we, we, again, I think that uh, I think the natural tendency for anyone is to avoid this kind of difficult subject. Mm-hmm. That, uh, and you know, you know that, that kind of is where we're at at the moment. And, and and the strange thing is, it's almost like history repeating itself in many ways through the generations, because another article that I actually read was saying that. The, the descendants have this incredible critical role, actually, in the way successive generations will understand the Holocaust and, and how we actually present the atrocities to them. Because it, it was saying that there are two ways. For instance, uh, the International Holocaust Remembrance Day in the United States takes place on the anniversary of Auschwitz-Birkenhaus liberation by the Soviets. While in Israel, mm-hmm. it's Yom HaShoah, which is Israel's Holocaust Remembrance Day, and this is set on the anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. So you've got two ways of mm-hmm. it being presented. The one presents it as the Jews being freed uh, as prisoners, you know, that they had to gain their freedom from outside intervention. But the other, the uh, the Ghetto Uprising, 
sort of shows the strength and the active resistance of, of the Jewish people who refused to let the Nazis decide their fate for them. So, you know what, this mm-hmm. article actually said that we need to be very careful how we actually do tell the story to future generations so that to inspire them that there is a well-deserved pride in the resilience of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I think, I think you know, there's, there's, um, there's merit in, in kind of focusing on you know, the heroism and ability for the Jewish people to survive such atrocities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, certainly, you know, in Belus, uh I think especially young people with pride and, and you know, sort of love for being part of the Jewish people. And you don't same... really want to educate, um, you know, young kids to kind of be ashamed of your history. No, so but at the same time, yes, and and at the same time, showing them the tremendous strength of of people who actually went in and the choices they made and and whether they came out alive or, or not, you know, the the tremendous power of that human spirit just sometimes to survive those horrors, even just for half a day. Do you know that in yeah. 2013, oh, it, is in, it truly is, the more I read about it and after visiting Poland and what have you, the more I, I really just admire that incredible strength. In 2013, Israel's population reached 6 million, which was very, 6 million Jewish citizens, which was very symbolic, mm-hmm. which, I mean, obviously now, this five years later, it's, it's even more so. So, you know, mm-hmm. what do you feel going forward that how are you going to make sure that the Schwab legacy actually lives on? And in what way do you want it to live on? So, so for me, it's, uh, it's, very, it's on a very basic personal level. I think the fact that we live in Israel is, is, is a huge, uh, is, is already a significant way. Um, that we we do um, maintain a, a, a let's call it traditional lifestyle, uh, you know, celebrating Shabbat every week and you know the the, the laws and uh, the festivals and things like that. So I think for me that's the number one way that I you know day in and day out focus on you know the positive aspects and maintaining a very full Jewish life. Uh, you know that that's the number one legacy. And will your children follow in that? Well, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, that's, that's for them to decide. Uh, so far, it's so good. I mean, I've got a, my son's in the army here, and he's very committed. Uh, very, you know, he loves being part of Israel. He loves Israel. He he he, he wants to live here for you know. Okay. Um, and my, just... my, my other daughter the same. I, I think so. I mean, it looks like that uh, we seem to be moving in the right direction. And a lot of credit to my wife as well. We're going uh, to get back she, to your wife in a minute. We just yeah. have to break for an <laughs> advert. Stay relevant and up to date. This is 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. And we're going into the last part of our interview with Daniel Schwab in Israel, a pre-record. And it's really been so good to, to talk to you, Daniel. Just tell me, is your wife a South African? No, she was actually uh, born and grew up in Canada. Um, she came with her family to Israel as a teenager, and uh, yeah, so and she, so more or less, she's been in Israel, you know, the same amount of time as I have. So she has her own family story to tell your children and your grandchildren to come, and future generations. Yeah, yeah, she does. I mean, she comes. Her, her grandfather was a, a well-known rabbi in Canada. Um, her family's mostly from Poland. Um, so, you know, they didn't really have such a direct uh, sort of um, involvement in the Holocaust. So they were fortunate to have left Europe many years before the Holocaust. Okay, so you've got different stories to tell. But please, Daniel, do go on with the responsibility that you've taken on 
of going and talking to groups and making sure that the this Holocaust denial just does not take root at all. We've got to do all we can to fight it. And Ben Gurion yeah. said, in Israel, in order to be a realist, you must believe in miracles. Well, I, I think um, that's what today we need to continue to protect our people and may miracles continue to protect us, really. We're going to end with uh, the film by the eighth day, Moses in Me. And uh, what would you like, how would you like to end? What would you like to say? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 look, I have a very uh, sort of specific role that I'm playing in terms of, um, you know, education uh, and dealing with the Holocaust. I mean, I think that what I mentioned before is that we need to still deal with what ha- has happened. And I think that the issue of reparations and compensation and uh, sort of really dealing with the, the issue of denial, um, the, I, I'm, that's my focus when I do get involved in sort of Holocaust education. That's my message and what I think needs to be discussed in more detail. Um, because uh, if we really want to make a change, um, we have to focus on on deep, deep changes. And uh, you know that's that's what that's my message. That's what I when I talk to people is on a very practical level. How can we actually um, sort of you know, create real change in people and and have real real justice or at least some type of justice? Uh, so that uh, this thing doesn't actually happen again, and it doesn't pay. We cannot have a situation where it pays to 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 um, to commit genocide. Absolutely, that's simple. And it's and going on around the problem. world. And Daniel, thank you so much for being on this program. I feel that we've all got a responsibility to actually make sure that our own values are where they should be, and that our the tikkun olam, which are our people have practiced throughout the generations should be our main focus here to reach out to others and uh, mm-hmm. and heal the world thank you mm-hmm. so much for being on yeah. this program with me and i'll be in touch thank you so much thanks you bye thank you.